It should have been a past event, but by God's grace and his design, it is a future event. We should be able to, many of us that were planning to go to Israel, look back and picture in our minds where Golgotha, one of the sites that it may have been, or to see the empty tomb, one of the potential sites that could have been, and apparently the first century church believed it to be because there was a meeting place there, to be able to look back and appreciate a song like that with those memories in mind. But we don't necessarily need a trip to Israel to appreciate the wonderful cross. When I survey the wonderful cross, if I were to have all of the world, it would be a present far too small. Before I open in prayer, I would like to read Colossians 3, if you would follow with me, verses 1 to 4. Colossians 3, as we continue the journey when I have opportunity to um, preach, been going through Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Where Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's open in prayer. God, we thank you for this awesome passage. We thank you for the truth of the words of the song that we just sang. And God, I would pray as I think of those that are here tonight or watching online, God, we have listened to thousands of messages, many of us and others, perhaps hundreds. And Father, we are familiar with this passage. But I pray as we come to this passage that we would approach it like we're reading a love letter, like we've never read it before. May we pause at the truth that just drips out of each word or each phrase, and may it drive us to a wonderment, an amazement of what we have in Christ. And may our motivation, may our desire be to truly seek the things above, to set our mind and hearts above. And God, may we reflect our prospect of what we have in Christ in the future and may that guide us in how we live in the present. God, may we pause and look back over the past, and may that guide us in how we live in the present. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your amazing grace when we survey the wondrous cross. In Christ's name, amen. Colossians chapter 3, 1 to 4. You know, this whole section really is chapter 3, verses 1 when we step into chapter 4, it's just like one long exhortation. When you read it, it just oh, so flows together. And I've stated in the past that the second half of the, in the second half of the book, Paul's moving from doctrine, which he covered in chapters 1 and 2, um, from, from our um, position that we have in Christ, to chapters 3 and 4, he's moving from doctrine to duty. In light of who we are, here and doctrinally, what Christ has done for us, our position, this is our duty. This should be our practice. This is what we should want to do. And we talked about the false teachers at Colossae and Gnosticism and what they were saying and their false philosophies and combining legalism, a little bit of Jewish teaching, and coming up with this weird teaching of angelic beings emanating from God and the further you got away, these divine beings became more human and worshiping these creatures. And Paul in chapters 1 and 2 clearly 
boldly declares what? The supremacy of Christ. And we saw that in chapters 1 verse 19 and chapter 2 verse 9. The word fullness describing Christ is in both of those verses. Awesome verses to use with Jehovah's Witnesses. 119 and um, 29 talking about the fullness that we have in Christ. So supremacy of Christ. But he bridges and he gets now to a new section and he's talking about in light of the supremacy of Christ, what should my response be? I should be submissive to Christ. In light of my position, I should have a certain practice. In light of this incredible doctrine, God, may I have a duty that I must flesh out and live out this truth. So when we step into chapter 3 and 4, we can't help but to have a bridge that we're reaching back into chapters 1 and 2 because you can't live chapters 3 and 4 without chapter 1 and 2. You can't live the Christian life without the supremacy of Christ and who he is. And that's the attachment that we're seeing here. In light of who Christ is, this is now how we must live. So thus we get into chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. There are really two, just an introduction, two major overlapping issues in Colossians that Paul's been addressing. Number one, there's this false teaching, this doctrinal confusing, confusion, this, just this weirdness about angelic beings and all of this false Gnosticism. So there's confusing doctrine, but there's also this confusing or this moral, immoral lifestyle, this moral carelessness of not living a life that's pure and right. And so Paul is bringing them to both of this, that, that man-made religion is really powerless to deal with sin. Only Christianity, a relationship with Christ, can deal with sin and bring about a proper lifestyle. Thus, in fact, when you get to verses 5 through 17 of chapter 3, it's all about moral living and practice and how we handle, not to be immorality, but the morals are, that are to come. So man-made religion doesn't have the power. We can't see change. Going to a psychiatrist or going to a psychologist might, you know, they're going to pop a person more with the drugs and with any helpful teaching, but it's the Word of God that will bring change when a person knows Christ is their Savior. So how can we confront when we look at a world? And if you were to be counseling people, how are, you, how are you going to confront a world that's filled with lust, a world that's filled with immorality, a world that's filled with greed, a world that's filled with anger, a world that's filled with self-centeredness, a world that's filled with self-promotion as a daily... Ex- how, do you, how, do you, how do you cancel that? You know, if you were to imagine a person, let's say you're on a two-lane highway and you're driving down this country road or wherever the road might be, a two-lane road, and there is a person, there's a lot of... Co- cars in the other lane coming at you. But one guy just decides, you know what? I'm tired of driving on my side of the road. I like your side. And he wants to drive on your side. And yet there's a whole bunch of cars. You, you have this car coming right at you. You have a kind of like a major headache coming your way, right? Literally. I mean, there are rules and guidelines for driving. You just can't do what you want to do. And, you know, and parents, when we teach our kids to drive, you know, we take them out driving and we try to help them, hopefully by our example too, that there are certain guidelines in how you're to drive and how you're to conduct yourself. Well, that's the same way spiritually. We just can't go out and live or drive, spiritually speaking, the way we want to. There are guidelines that we have to be within. And this is what Paul's getting into in this, chapter, this third chapter. And these guidelines are to help us not to restrict our freedom. It's like to stay on the right side of the road so everybody can get the most out of their driving experience, right? God wants to not limit our freedom. God wants to enhance our freedom. 
And so when we come to this section, we're going to see that, that true freedom is really, if I may say, and you've heard it, I'm sure, a boatload of times, true freedom in Jesus Christ is to be a slave to Jesus Christ. If I want real freedom, then I must be in bondage to Christ because that's where I will experience real freedom. Um, true freedom is in submission to the rule of Christ in my life. Just background before we step into chapter 3. Paul has been, if you look in verses 16 and following, which I didn't address, I've jumped from, from 16 right into chapter 3. Um, but when you look at 16 and following, Paul is, was critiquing these false teachers. They're promoting, you have to do this, you have to eat this, you have to act this way, you have to do, um, perform this function um, to get a morality or an acceptance or, or this is how you worship. So Paul says that's not how you worship or what you worship, but this is who you worship and how you worship. And he steps into chapter 3 talking about Christ and Christ and his supremacy and his, his position and where he is. So if I were to give us a big idea, really what I want us to get away with tonight, by the way, do you catch my title? And we'll pick up on that later. Buttons, pins, and pennies. So this is what I really want us to go, go um, to remember. Go after the above, not the below. Um, don't pursue things below, pursue things above. And that's what Paul is, is in this little paragraph is really trying to communicate. I want you to go after the above, and he gives us reasons why. He supports it, not the below. So verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ. Paul's reminding the Colossians of their new lives and their identity that they have in Christ. They must remember who they are. You see that word then, if then? Um, in the Greek, it could be translated then or therefore, un. Then or therefore, if therefore, if then, what do you think he's trying to do? If it's really translated and it means therefore, what is, he, what is he forcing the reader to do? He's forcing the reader to look back. He wants you to pause and it's a conjunction. He's linking, it's a bridge. He's linking what he's just talked about. And it's verses 16 to 23 is, is this critique of these, these, these teachers. We don't have to submit. The follower of Christ doesn't have to submit to these false teachers or these, these distorted laws to get a purpose in life because they have died to the old world. Did you hear me on that? The follower of God, and we're going to pick up more on this, we don't have to listen to these old laws because we have died to this old world or this way of thinking. Look back in, in verse 20 of chapter 2 and here in chapter 3. You see the phrase, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, but if with Christ you die, do you see that in 2.20? Okay, and then in 3.1, do you see, if then you've been raised? What's the similarity do you see there? If you died with Christ, and now it's talking of 3.1, if you've been raised with Christ, you see the similarity? There is a word, um, in the Greek, it's a, it's a particle. It's the same word that begins A, epsilon yoda, begins 220 and begins 3-1. You might say, well, you're trying to impress us with your um, couple words that you know in the Greek. No, I'm really not because this construction sets up a first-class condition. Well, what's a first-class condition? Um, let, me say, let me say to this, um, if you were to go walking in Veterans Park, in the morning, you had to get better company, you would get in great shape, okay? You see what I said to her? Well, what I know is that she does walk in the park in early in the morning at Veterans Park, 
and she is getting in shape. So really that if is assumed to be my, true in the mind of the speaker. That's what a first class condition is. It's something that the speaker writes and he assumes it to be true. He knows it to be true. So really it should be translated what? Since. Since you are walking in the morning. Okay, so he's writing, he says, since you have been raised with Christ. So he's not saying something like, boy, I'm not sure if you're really saved. I'm not sure if you really are, are in Christ. No, he knows that they are. And it's loaded with, in light of this, this is what you must do, right? I, I can imagine Mrs. Ravert in her class, you know, as a teacher, you are in my class, since you're in my class, this is how you will behave. Is that right? I mean, or you just say to them, guys, have fun, do whatever you want. No. You know, this is how you're going to live in my class. And this, so this is what Paul is writing to them. Since you have been raised with Christ, this is what's going to happen. You must seek the things of above. Since this is true in your life. I mean, this is like he, he leans across the centuries, grabs us by the throat ever so lovingly as a father that's passionate, and he says, this is how you must live. Remember who you are. Remember your position. And it gets a little bit more intense. If you have been raised with Christ, um, does that sound, I'm going to give you three options. Present, okay, let me just give you two. Present or passive. Since you have been raised, is it talking about something present or passive? Something that happened in the past or something that's happening now? Maybe that's not a good question. <laughs> it's really passive, right? Since you have been raised, you hear that? Past tense. It's a passive verb. You might say, well, what's the big deal of that? Again, it's, it's kind of powerful. A passive verb in the Greek, the recipient has no bearing on it. They're passive. Okay, if I was to go over here to Allison, now her brothers wouldn't let me because they would beat me up, but if I was to pull this mask off or keep pulling it back and forth, and Allison kept sitting there, and I could bing, bing, bing. Now, if you had a Dallas mask on, I'd do something nasty to it, okay, but not Neil's. But let's say, if, you know, you're just passive, you're just sitting there, letting the person keep doing it. That's passive. Well, this is a beautiful truth. If you then be raised with, so the subject is passive. Who's the subject? It's the Colossian saints. It's those that um, have received Christ. We looked at it in 2.6. So the ones that have received Christ, you are passive. Greek teaches theology. What is it saying? That it's all on God. God has saved them. God has raised them. He's done the entire work. You Colossians receive God's blessings. Yes, they put their faith and trust. That was their part. But the, 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 the saving part, that was God doing it all. Since you are raised with Christ, since you have received this gift that you're totally passive to, since you had no part in it, since you've had this new life, and since it's been done for you, this is what you should do. You should then seek those things that are above. But still looking at this phrase, if you are, since you are raised with Christ, he's driving home this point. Since you have come to know him, he's talking about their position. This is who you are. One of the things that, that I love doing with new individuals when they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is just taking a journey with them over the weeks and over the months. This is, where, this is your new position in Christ. This is what God has done for you, for them to come to understand that and slowly start to see the light bulbs click. 
got an awesome text message a couple days ago from um, a guy that I'm meeting with, and I, I gave him a disciple journal, and he just wrote back and sent me like one of the longest text messages I ever got, but just from Matthew 4.4, and he says, this is, I'm getting it, and he's just talking about the truth in Matthew 4.4 and what he's seeing and, and the beauty of that. He's coming to understand what's available in Christ's position. But to go back to the fundamentals, to the, to, the, to the basics, when we look at the Christian life and all that God has done for us, we believers, we that were dead in, in our sins, we that were uh, uh, outside of the family of God, God brought us inside that we couldn't be saved by human effort, and God saved us and brought us close by. By saving faith, we have entered a new dimension. By saving faith, we that were dead outside of Christ, we have been made alive inside of Christ. To be raised, looking at a, a heavenly quality of life, we have been raised in Christ. We were dead in our sins. We were separated from God. We were blinded. We were an enemy of God. But all of that has changed. We have been made a member of his family. We've been made alive. We've been brought close. We've been adopted into the family of God. Our sins are forgiven. Uh, we've been redeemed. We've been raised with Christ. So he's really banging home the theme here, who you are in Christ. Because he's about to get to some priorities that the children of God have to have. But he's reminding them of who they are, that since you are in Christ. Before we move on to verse, the end of verse 1, look at all of the connections that we see in just these four verses where Christ is used. How many do we have? Verse 1, with Christ. Verse, verse 1 also, where Christ is. Verse 3, with Christ. Verse 4, when Christ. Verse um, 4, with him. How many did I count? There are five, right? So there are five connections, all in Christ, with Christ, when Christ, all because we're in Christ. It changes everything. They received the new life and we've been transferred. We're now in Christ. What an awesome position. If you struggle in the Christian life, you ever get to a point where it's like it hasn't rained a whole long, long time in your life spiritually to bring those refreshing showers from God? You ever struggle and you feel like you're in the desert and even to the point maybe you question, do I really know the Lord is my Savior? You know what I encourage people in the past and even I've done in, in, in my life, but okay, I, God, this is what I believe. I know that I've accepted Christ as my Savior. I know that I'm, I'm saved by faith in Christ alone nothing that I can do who Jesus Christ is. But I just speak truth to your mind. Who am I in Christ? What has he done for me? What is my position in Christ? That's what Paul's doing here because that will start to kindle. When you sing a song like this, when I survey the wondrous cross, when I just pause and remember what he has done for me, it starts to just revive our hearts and our souls in gratitude that we are then setting ourselves up to seek and to set as he will pursue in this, in this chapter. Let's move on and look at the believer's priorities in 3, 1b and 2. He says, since you've been raised with Christ, since you're in Christ, since this is a reality, since you know him, okay, it's time to stop dogging it. It's time to stop coasting in the Christian life. It's time to just stop going through the motions. It's time to, to get real, he says. And here's what you do as a real believer. You're going to have proper priorities. You're going to have a priority that changes, changes everything. You're going to have a priority that will act like you're a Christian. You know, you think of priorities. What's a priority of a young girl that's to be engaged or to be married? You know, everything changes in her life. It's no longer 
one set or direction that maybe she's going, but she starts to think of, of um, everything to do with the wedding, right? Whether it's wedding dress, whether it's who to invite, whether floral arrangement, whether the dinner, whether uh, honeymoon, where they live, getting the apartment ready. All of this starts to come in because there's different priorities. Things have changed. And here we're looking at Paul stressing a priority. Here's a priority that we're to have. We're to seek those things above. Look at what he writes. Seek the things above. Does this sound like a suggestion or does this sound like a, a command to you? What do you think? You alive? You with me? All right. Thank you. It's a command. You know, it's not a great, it's not a suggestion. He says, since you are alive, seek those things. It's, he's giving us a command here. In fact, there are two commands, to seek and to set. He's commanding that we are to seek those things that are alive. Now, it's in the present tense. And present tense means it's continuous. We're to keep seeking. It's not a one-time thing like, you know, I sought for, I sought for heavenly things back in 1984. And it was, a, it, was a nice, it was a nice, you know, time of seeking in that period of my life. But not anymore. No, Paul's writing in the present tense, we're to keep seeking, continuously be seeking, keep going after, seek those things that, that are located. Where are they located? Seek the things that are above. Focus our attention, be riveted. He says, seek the things that are above, and it's to be continual, continuous action. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, he talked about um, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So if the child of God has a hope laid up in heaven. We are going to the one that's seated in the heavens at the right hand of God, it says in, this, in these verses. Then in chapter 4, verse 1, it talks about Christ in heaven. So in light of all of that, our hope is in heaven, Christ is in heaven. We're to do what? We're to seek the things that are above. The above's talking about heaven. We're to seek it. We're to be like a... Or to be like a dog sitting by the dinner table whose owners have often given scraps off of the table. I, I can speak out of some um, history with this. When we had a dog back on Long Island, we try not to give scraps off of the table, but often when my wife wasn't looking, I would shoot the dog a scrap, and it would give me away because what would it be doing I mean, she would be focused right at the table, not moving anywhere. I mean, you could be playing some instrument or doing cartwheels just in the next room, next, you know, within eyesight, but Epi's focused because she's waiting for more scraps, right? You have a dog do that? Cats are dumb. They don't do that, but dogs are smart. You know, they're looking for, <laughs> looking, looking for food. I mean, but the focus of a dog that's, that's set, that's the idea that I see, to seek and to set. That word to be intentional, focused, we're not distracted, we're looking straight ahead, and we're looking to things that are above. And this is what, what he's saying. Since you are raised with Christ, since we have had our positions changed, we're now to set, we're now to seek, our, seek those things which are above. Well, what's above? What's above? What do you think he's talking about? To seek those things that are above. Okay, that's, a, that's nice to say it's a present command, it's continuous and all of that, but what are the things above that we're to seek? What is, he, what is he talking about? Who is the prize of the above? Who is it? We're Baptists, so don't, we're not to talk. 
We're not to be charismatic. Now, who's, who's the above? Who's the glory of the above? Who's the prize of the above? Who's worth all of the worship that's in the above? Is it not Jesus Christ? Is it not God? So seek the things that are above. I think, first of all, it's got to be preoccupied with the person that's above. I want to be consumed with who he is. What are, what are his plans? And we kind of find that out right in this book. What are his purposes? What are his priorities? What is, what is his programs? So when I seek the things above, I want to know what, what he's all about. And why should I do that? Oh, remember who you are. You are raised with Christ. You were dead prior to that, but now we're raised with him. So we're to seek these things that are above. We're to be consumed with it. We're to make him our focus, to make him our attention, to make him our design, to be everything is about him. But I think it also says, whatever described Christ when he walked on this earth, that's what I'm to be about. I'm to be consumed with his character, with his characteristics, with his attributes, with, with the persona, with the person that he was. So seek things above. It's everything to do with God's priorities, God's plans, God's programs. So he's calling on the child of God. Based on who you are, this is how you ought to be, this is what you ought to be seeking. You know, pastor does these surveys on Wednesday nights. If he was to send out a survey, and let's say he was to send out a survey and say, tonight I want you to survey Tim Ravert. <laughs> I shouldn't have picked on Tim, but he uses one of our names. And um, I want you to, do, would you define this person as a person that is consumed with God, or would you define that they're consumed with, and we give some other options. Of course, we're not going to do that. But what would people define us as in a survey? What would we be described as? Are we consumed with seeking things above? Well, if so, how does it look in our life? What are, what are we doing that proves that to be the case? Are we all consumed about the temporal, um, whatever they may be, your job, um, family, um, grandkids? Let me show you my phone. I just have 185 new pictures, and do you have three hours, and I'll show you all my grand, my grand. Is that, is that what defines us? Um, retirement funds, sports teams, go Eagles, boob cowboys. I mean, what is it that defines us? Um, <laughs> I need this message, but, you know, Bob, pray for me. Um, but really, what, what, what consumes us? And Paul is saying, may we be consumed that, that I, I could tell you what this, he loves to tell people about Christ and he loves to, he loves to defend the faith. He loves to, to see people come to know Christ. He wants to, whatever it might be, are we consumed with God's plans, God's program? Seek the things that are above. Well, Paul moves on and he's, you know, he's talking about the above, but look at the attachment to it where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So he's telling us, seek the things of above. And if you, you, you kind of forget what that is, it's where Christ is seated. Remember Psalm 110, verse 1? It's David speaking this prophecy. The Lord, David, speaking of Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Christ used that with the religious leaders. How can David be speaking of his Lord to say, sit at my, you know, the Lord would say, sit at my footstool. Because Christ was using that as an argument that David's Lord, the Messiah, would be far greater than David. He would be one that was worthy of worship. So we're reminded of this, in this passage of Christ being at the right hand at the place of authority. Christ said in Luke 22, 
from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God, and they got berserk because they knew that he was claiming to be God. Do we see the connection? Seek the things above because of who is there. Who's there? You that were dead have been raised with Christ. Seek the things above. It ought to be a game changer in every one of our lives. Because of who I am in Christ, I must seek those things above because that's where my precious Lord is. It's easy to sing a song that we sang 25, 20 minutes ago. When I survey, a little bit tougher to put it into practice. God, may this be my life. That I want to seek the things because that's where, where Christ is and what he is worthy of. Well, he moves on. He gives us a priority in light of that. Seek those things which are above a second priority that we're to have. And he's just reminding them, in light of your position and who you are, set your mind on things above. And again, this is a present active imperative. This is a present um, command. It's to be ongoing. It's to be continuous. He says, now set your mind on things above. I think the ante, so to speak, is, is up a little bit in this phrase. The other one's a little more um, softer or gentler, and this is more specific. Now he's driving home a little bit deeper. He's emphasizing a, a specific area. Set your mind He's going beyond the seeking, and he's emphasizing the need to directly, intently set your mind on something. It means to, this word, if you look at the word set, it means to ponder, is to reflect, to directly, direct one's mind to a specific item. And perhaps my dog illustration would have been better here. It's directly to, to camp on one thing. Set your mind. Be consumed with only one thing. Set your mind on things above. I look at you, Phil, and I think of my excitement for next, next week when we begin this, uh, another D group. And, and what I want in each of the guys' lives and for them to push me in this, I want us to set our mind on things above. We want to we pursue Christ and be more diligent and aggressive in encouraging one another as we want to accomplish. We want to further God's kingdom. We want to simply put, glorify God. And we want to make much of him. Well, this is what he's after here is we, we set our mind on things above, that we're going to push each other towards this. He says, set our mind on, make a commitment in thought and actions. Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says that, you know, that we be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? How are we transformed by the what? That's right, renewing of our minds. So we want, to be, we want to be transformed. We want to be changed. We're going to renew our minds. I'm going to set my mind on things above, not horizontally. I'm going to look above, not below, not be pursuing all of these things down here. You know, there's, life gives us some, some beautiful illustrations sometimes, even though they're pretty, pretty hard ones. Um, and I think of, of one that fits in this category. Set your mind on things above. A mind or a life that is preoccupied with Christ, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of crushing, debilitating, um, emotional things that happen to us, but a mind that's set on God can rise above that and beautifully bring glory to God in the greatest crisis. And we as a church have been praying for um, Wesley, um, Kristen Houghton and my son-in-law Eric Houghton's sister's son. 
Um, he was born with a heart defect, and they knew that prior to birth, and they, of course, wouldn't um, consider something as evil as abortion. They went through, and for seven months, Danielle stayed at the hospital, you know, just fighting for this little guy's life, and James was allowed sometimes to come and go, but because life was pretty challenging for their two youngest, they just put them at at the Houghton's home, um, um, Danielle's parents' home, Kristen and Eric's parents' home. And, and Kathy took care of the two little ones, um, Travis and Olivia. And um, as they were there seven months, um, Kathy was able to teach Travis, their three-year-old, the 23rd Psalm that he memorized it. And he got to not just memorize it, but taught the meaning of it. And so when Danielle and James got their little people and told them that um, Wesley was promoted to glory. Travis's response, and he said, and I quote, you mean he is living in the house of the Lord forever? But he said it with excitement. That he got it, that his little brother that he never met is living in the house of the Lord forever. And that's verse 6 of Psalm 23. So in the midst of a, of a mind that Kathy's mind focused on on the word of God on, on heavenly things, setting my mind above. I'm going to teach my little guy here what it means, Psalm 23. And this is how he got it in life, that, that when we are done this journey on earth, even a baby, that they're in the house of the Lord forever. See, that's a mind that's set on the things above. That's a mind that's set on it. It's not a crutch. It's a reality. It's not just something that's meant for some people my age. It's meant for age of college young people, high school young people, every facet of life that these realities meant to change our lives. I'm going to set my mind on things above. doesn't matter what others say, what others do. I'm going to be focused and this is my pursuit. But Paul moves on and he says, set it on things above, not on things on the earth. He's calling on, be on believers to focus intently on things above. He's urging them, reject things that are on the earth. Now let's look at how this flows together. Understand, first of all, this verse isn't calling us to be paupers. It's not calling us to live in tents. It's not calling us to not drive um, cars or even, you know, to, to buy nicer cars or homes or whatever. It's not calling us to that kind of a lifestyle, but it's calling us to have things, but things to not have us, right? It's calling us not to be consumed with these things. And look at how it plays out. Since the above is talking about what? Set your mind on things above, talking about heaven, talking about Christ, talking about God, his plans, his programs, and who he is. So if that's what setting your mind on above means, then what does it mean if you set your mind on things below? Must it not mean the opposite? Is that right? Right? So if this means this, Pursuing God's plan, God's program, God's purposes, putting him first, glorifying him, being all about him, then setting mine on things down here must be the exact opposite. It's my plans, my programs, my priorities, my purposes, my agenda. It's life without God. So when my mind is set on things down here, I'm forgetting God. It's all about me and what I can accomplish. It's what I can do. It's not not giving any room to a sovereign Lord that reigns above. Several years ago, many years ago, an article in San Francisco newspaper 
carried this, this article about a young man that actually found $5 when $5 was maybe worth $10. Um, but he was so excited that he resolved that he would never lift his head again, that he would never look when he was walking, that he would always walk, look down. And apparently he journaled everything that he found in his lifetime, and he said that he found 29,516 buttons, 54,172 pins, and 12 cents. And it bent back in a miserly disposition. So may we not look for buttons, pins, or pennies, but we set our mind on things above. And this is what Paul is really calling us to. Well, you know, he gives us some pretty incredible motivation. As we step into verse 3, we need to um, step it up. Maybe we get a part 2 next week. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. So now he's giving the motivation that really becomes position. For you have died. He's reminding them, you have died. Well, what, what does he mean here? You have died. What is he hitting? He's trying to remind them of their heavenly focus. And he looks and says, we, we have died in Christ. That's what, when we have baptism, you know, we baptize people, we'll remind them it's a, it's a symbolic act of something that happened internally. And he's speaking here, and he's speaking of, of people that have died, but how have they died? I want to pick off of this verse for a moment. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Something died when we accepted Christ as our Savior. You know what that was? Romans 6, Ephesians 4, and Colossians here, Colossians 3, talks about the old man. The old man died. The old man was, was that part of our nature that was attached to, say, to Adam's curse, attached to Adam's corruption that was dooming us, if you please, to hell, a life separated from God. When we trusted in Christ, that nature died. I don't believe a Christian has two natures, nor does the Bible. Oh, we have the flesh that we struggle with, but a nature is what defines us. We have a new nature in Christ. If any man be in Christ, these old, old things have passed away, all things. We have a new nature, but we still have the flesh. So in, in, when we trusted in Christ, our old nature, it said it died. You have died with Christ. In a very real sense, there's only one interpretation of this, right? That there was an aspect somehow that we died with Christ when, when Christ died on the cross. That the penalty for our sin was taken upon Christ and it was paid for by him. And that that penalty, when I trusted in him, was removed so that the penalty and in essence and I want to be careful here, the power of sin has been broken in our lives. Maybe another day. But do we get that? And, and here it's saying that we have died. You have died in your life. You have died with Christ. That, that we don't... Now, please, I'm not part of the Keswick movement. I'm not part of some holiness movement. We don't have to sin. Is that, is that so foreign to us? We can choose not to sin because the old nature, our old man has been killed. We have this new attachment. We're in Christ, but we will sin. The flesh is very much alive. We see that in Romans 7. Paul's battling the flesh. But when I sin, I am sinning by choice. 
Prior to trusting in Christ, when I sinned, I sinned by no choice, but I had to. So when I have a wrong thought, wrong action, wrong words, wrong whatever, wrong I am sinning by choice. Trusting in Christ, he killed that. Sin doesn't have to have dominion over me. But it does. We, we fail because we give in into the flesh. Here she's talking about our position that we have in Christ. We have been liberated. We have been freed. I have died. I am risen with Christ. Maybe this will help. On the final night of July, 1834, so almost 200 years ago, the, British em- the slaves in the British Empire, 800,000 of them, rose to celebrate the end of July, 1834. Why? By a decree of of parliament. The night of their cruel bondage was coming to an end, according to the the historian George Trevelyan. He wrote these words that slavery was outlawed, it was abolished in the British Empire, and he said that at midnight an entire race of people climbed onto the hilltops to watch the sun rise, bringing them freedom as his first rays struck the waters. So here's this, this document that emancipation finally happened, that slavery in the British Empire was abolished. Um, that victory, to this day, by the way, is still celebrated. But yet, did the evil of slavery, was it done? Abolition did not put an, an, e- an end to all of the evil discrimination, and we're seeing that still a result of things playing out in America today. Just because there was a victory was secured doesn't mean that the evil of slavery was conquered. And if I can make that comparison, if, if, if I may, because the evil in Adam, so to speak, or sin was conquered, it was killed, doesn't mean that sin is not to be abolished and fought because it's the flesh. And I, I think, by the way, it's more than semantics. It's not just semantics. It's a reality. It's dead. I can be victorious. I need to have more faith. I need to trust Christ more. I need to say no to the flesh. I don't have to give in. Romans 6 is all about that. That's what Paul's talking about here, risen with Christ, that we're, we're in him. We're liberated. And then just to hit, um, your life is hidden with Christ. That, that's an awesome phrase that really time doesn't allow me to, to address. Let me jump from our glorious position, because I want to camp for three minutes on the closing here. The believer's prospect. He's talking about this prospect that we have in Christ. So he's gone through this glorious position. He's gone through what should be our priorities. This is our prospect, that Christ is, is our life. Again, time doesn't allow me, and I wanted to hit that. That's a special phrase. Look, chase that down in your own devotions, that Christ is your life. It doesn't talk about something separate that becomes such an intimate association with Christ that we can say no to sin if we have faith and trust in him. Oh, we're going to fall, but we should be sinning less and less, right, as believers? I mean, is that not a fair statement? We should be sinning less. We should be getting victorious because as we trust in Christ more and more. But this is our prospect. We that have believed in the infinite, eternal God, that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, God the Son, to this earth. And he sent him to this earth to be born of a virgin birth without sin, lived a perfect life. And he gave himself as before eternity, Peter says, before the foundation of the earth, he was to give his blood. And he gave his blood for us and he rose again from the dead. One day he is coming for us. That's our prospect 
That's what drives us. That's what, what ought to cause me to seek those things that are above, set my mind on things above. Let me close with, with this illustration application that uh, it might be a little radical, some of the stuff, but I think it's good to be radical, to be stretched. Many years ago, in a Baptist church in Brighton, England, sat a young man, a congregation of about 1,000 people, as they were singing this, this great congregation, singing their songs, he sat through maybe half the service. But he couldn't contain himself any longer. He had to walk out before, on the hymn just before the message. And he walked the beaches in Brighton, England, crying and crying out to God. And he walked and walked and walked because he was crushed in his spirit. The man... No surprise, I'm reading about 1,100 pages. I'm on the 800th page. The man was Hudson Taylor. And he had just returned from seven years in China, and he was broken as a 29-year-old man. He was broken physically, um, going nonstop. He had to go back, thought he was going to die, um, returned to England for six years. <laughs> but those six years were incredible years, translating into um, a Chinese dialect, and raising a group of people, but I'll get to that. But he was crushed over what he heard because, and he wrote, and he, and reading thousands and thousands of words and pages of, hundreds of pages on him, this is not his typical language, but he, he wrote that he was, he was just crushed over the smug, self-satisfied singing of the congregation. He said, people that just show up to get, to get, to get. He was crushed and he couldn't understand, he said, in eternal terms, how people could sit in a church in Brighton, England, when there were thousands and millions of people, the greatest population in the world at that day and t today, that were dying and going into eternity without Christ. And this was about the fifth year of his stay in England. He cried out to God. He said, God, I must have 24 missionaries to return with me in a year. Because there were 12 provinces, and he was crying out to God to give him 24 missionaries, and it was all going to be on him to raise their support for the 24. And it's just a fascinating journey of him traveling and, and how God um, used him and, and um, speaking to so many different people. One year later, he was given a large sum of money. He rented a whole boat to take 24 missionaries to China to go two to each province. And the work was just exploding, what God was doing. You know, we sing the song, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands than to be the king of a vast domain or to be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. If I were to ask you how many of you would sing that and mean it, I think maybe most of us would. But you know what? Uh, I, I, I would say, really? Is that really true? Is that, is that the way our lives, our conduct, what it looks like? When I start to think about, am I on mission? How's my prayer life in praying for the lost and praying for people? Uh, how do I try? Who do I call? Who do I pursue? How do I encourage people? Does really God mean everything to me? I, I, I do pray, maybe more so since I've been reading Hudson Taylor, Pray for our young people, our middle-aged people, and our older people in these, in these ways. I pray that our young people 
would be more than just what they can get out of this life. I'm going to get this job and be able to buy this car and, and buy this home. There's more to life than that. Maybe we should pray that God would raise up young people in our church not just to be on mission if God calls them to live here at home, to be on mission to actually impact neighbors and people for Christ, but God would call. Does he still do that, call people to, to places where the name of Christ isn't named? That he would raise up missionaries from our own church to go, but to start now and to go into unreached fields. That they would call us as middle-aged people that we would be about God's business. That, that we would be about, God, how can I serve you now? How can I serve you? How can I, how, can I, how can I impact my neighborhood for Christ? God, how can I reach out to people that, that, that ha I haven't seen? Um, we haven't been together. Check on them. More than me going through my simple routine. You know, let me cha challenge another group of people and... and uh, Bob, you're going to be in this group shortly. <laughs> I will be one day too. But retired people, what do we do with our lives? What's retirement, right? I mean, some of you are many years away. But what does it mean, retirement? What, what are you going to do? Is it to collect more seashells on the seashore? You know, what if we're really radical in retirement and we're able to do things like... Um, Instead of saying the nurseries for young moms, they have the kids, let them take care of it. I did my share. What if we as retired people, we step up and help out so the young moms don't always have to be in there? Or what if we're, we call Kevin and there are guys like George and others, you guys are incredible, you know, coming and helping Kevin. But what if you, we, 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 and Fred, you know, we call, Kevin, what do you need? I know you're down a man this year, school finances. What do you need help with? you know, that we, that we just serve? Or how about if we think of something like this, retired people, and Lynn and I have these kind of talks. Um, what if when you're done and you're set financially and you don't need to work in retirement perhaps, what if you dream and pray, God, how can you use me on the mission field? I mean, maybe you have a skill that you could contact somebody and say, hey, mission agency, this is what I'm, I'm good at, what I can do. Um, is there any place that you could use me as a volunteer, but you got to give me free housing because I'm not going to pay for a home here and over there. Free housing, but you got free labor. Uh, what if we were to, to start to think like that? I mean, you nurses, you guys, man, you're really blessed with some incredible skill. You know, but as we think, as we step into, into retirement, how can I you be used in, in the mission field, not just home, but God, maybe go for like six months because I don't want to be too, gone, too long for my grandkids. I mean, my kids. Um, you know, but if, if you know, we, we go for six months, I wanna, I'm going to work in an orphanage and help you out there. Or pastor, you need to go home and, and return to um, report to churches. I'll run discipleship program, preach in your church or whatever our, our abilities might be and just to, to advance God's kingdom. You see, setting our mind on things above, seeking things above, but it doesn't begin if you're years away from retirement. It begins now. Let's serve God now. But why? Why should we do that? Remember who he is. Christ above. 119 and 229 two, uh, two talks about his fullness. Jesus Christ is God the Son, came to this earth, died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I owe him everything. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. Um, God, may we go out and 
be passionate, live for you as we should. God, we love you. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.